0: Dude, can you clean out the sink when you're done? Hey
1: everybody, and welcome to episode 47 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel we have Ben Sherman.
2: Hello from warm and nice weather Houston. <sighs>
1: Andrew Madsen. Hi, from Salt Lake City. James Uber. I just flew in from the Gulf Coast
0: of Florida. Boy, are my arms tired. Pete Hodgson. It's terrible terrible. Uh hello from Sunny Berkeley. I'm Charles Maxwood
1: from devchat.tv and this week we have a few special guests. Uh we have Brianna Wu. Let's crack a lakin. Amanda Warner.
3: Hey, how's
4: it going?
1: And Maria Enderton. Uh hi.
3: I can't seem to find a good mic. So sorry
1: if i'm so. That's okay. We'll forgive you. <laughs> so, uh w- we brought you on this week to talk about game development. And the tools that I have listed here are Maya and UDK. Sure, sure. So uh, why don't you guys introduce yourselves really quickly, and then we'll jump in and talk about game development. Brianna, do you want to go first?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Brianna Wu. I am the head of development at Giant Space Cat. Uh, we create cinematic experiences using the Unreal Engine. Uh, Unreal, as you may know, is the same engine we use for Mass Effect, Deus Ex, Batman, Arkham Asylum, you know, any number of professional console-quality uh, 3D games. It was actually... Uh, it started in the uh, late 90s, actually. Um, and what's happened over the years is it's become an extremely popular development tool. So, you know, we started... Uh, it started out there, and now we're actually moving into the fourth version of the engine. And uh one of the really exciting things that's happened along the way is, you know, Unreal uh back in, I think it was 2009, 2010, could really see the writing on the wall, how we were, you know, gaming was going to be moving more and more towards mobile devices, meaning, you know, iPads, iPhones, things like that. So they ported their engine over to ios and um so that's basically what we work with and it's uh it's extremely exciting it is uh i think it's fair to say it is the most powerful 3d engine that exists on that platform
1: i have to say that when you said you create cinematic experiences with a game engine it reminded me of those youtube videos where uh two guys are swearing at each other on world of warcraft or something (laughs)
5: <laughs> and it's being read by thematic actors. That's right. right. Or, or some <laughs>
1: terrible voice engine, right? <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was actually uh, you know, when uh, I was coming of age and uh, you know, learning to do this, one of my very favorite games was uh, Parasite Eve on the PlayStation 1. And you know, they built that as you know, the cinematic RPG uh, it was you know full motion video and you look back at it today and it's it's beyond dated. But um, when we started our company, we that was always a game that was really in my mind. Because, uh, if you look at a lot of, uh, games on iPhone, they tend to be these sprite-based in-app purchase, you know, very forgettable, ephemeral experiences. And, you know, what Amanda, Maria, and I really have worked for years to bring to fruition is this game that tells a story, this game that lets you meet characters and identify with them and, and feel emotion for them. So that's really, you know, what drives us every day. Cool.
1: Let's have Amanda and Maria introduce themselves. Amanda, do you want
5: to go next? Sure. Uh, My name is Amanda Stenquist Warner. (laughs) Um, And I'm the co founder and uh, animator on the project. And I primarily, well, uh, not primarily, I exclusively use uh, Maya to do all the animation. And then we poured it into UDK, and then you know, Bree and Maria hit a make game button and make it work.
1: <laughs> well, you make it sound like you do all the work.
5: I do. Uh, those two <laughs> layabouts do nothing, and I'm carrying the company all on my own. It's it it's really true. It's really it's true. tragic. Yeah.
4: yeah, they
1: they click the make game button and the make sales button, right?
5: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's how gaming works, right?
1: Totally. <laughs> I played, a, I played a lot of game
2: dev story, that, that simulation game, so I consider myself <laughs> an expert on this topic.
5: <laughs> right, right.
4: You can give us a few tips over the course of this podcast. That would be very Just level course.
1: up to hacker mode.
4: Okay. Ah. Yeah. Right, right.
1: Did you get the pirated version where you started <gasps> losing oh, that, money? That was hilarious. That
4: was <laughs> genius. That was, oh, my God. Yeah, I just fell right. down uh, to
2: uh, Was can... this the same game or is it a different game simulator? Game dev no, that simulator. Was it. That was it. Game was dev, was dev it. story? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was pretty awesome.
4: Yep.
1: <laughs> All right, Maria, do you want to introduce yourself before we get... It seems like we keep going off on tangents here.
3: <laughs> sure, that's fine. I'll, I'll try to talk louder. I'm not the most loudest person in the world, but I'm Maria Enderton, and I'm the programmer on the project, but I also I started the project doing more of the technical art, so character rigging, working in Maya, and I still do that uh, as well as the programming and uh, miscellaneous troubleshooting and, and various programs
5: effects lighting <laughs> <laughs>
3: panic button you oh, know, she's, yeah yeah
5: she very once much is you, our panic
3: button it's so true it's so
4: true when we don't know what the what we're doing uh we call maria and uh, she makes it all better
1: Every project needs one of those. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I have a, a
2: question about uh, the UDK. When I when I think sure. of Unreal, I think of like the big, you know, triple A titles and sure. uh, that are using it. Uh, I never really thought of it as like an uh, like an indie or a small shop uh, platform to develop games on. So, what makes it approachable to smaller teams?
4: I don't think it is if you don't have a Maria on staff. Um, <laughs> you know it's it's been very challenging for us. Um you know, a lot of the things on our game we've had to completely figure out by ourselves. You know, it's not it, it is accurate and fair to say that most teams working with Unreal are you know much larger than we are. We're a team of primarily five people. So you know, Maria, do you want to speak a little
3: bit to that and some of the challenges that you found? I mean, in terms of 3D engines, I haven't tried Unity, but I've heard it's much more user-friendly to get started. At the same time, Unreal is very powerful. So, I mean, that was a big selling point, graphically good. I mean, the game most people know that is with Unreal would be Infinity Blade, which is made by Chair. And, yeah, I mean, it's been a hard transition trying to figure out things as we go because the documentation, um, you know... The engine changes so much that documentation isn't always up to date, or there's less people using mobile, so there's less of a community. Uh, Like in Boston, where we are, there's actually a Unity meetup community, but there's no such thing for Unreal to kind of talk to other people about.
4: Yeah, it's a real challenge for us on a daily basis. Uh, I do want to say Epic has been... It's it just a fantastic ally for us. And, um, you know, they, they're, they're very interested in teams like ours you know, using this engine that they have spent, your know, money and resources developing. So, you know, it's, it's certainly doable. And, you know, if anyone out there is interested in developing with this, uh, and you have questions, like, feel free to email me. Like, we're, um, we're always looking for allies to, uh, you know, develop with this engine.
2: So do if you any- think you could, uh, maybe like, uh, talk about like what the engine provides to you, like it. I think most people are kind of familiar with like the idea of 2D engines. You get like, um, you have textures and you make sprites and you can sort of move right. them around the screen and animate them. Uh, uh-huh. what types of facilities does, uh, Unreal give you?
4: Well, how, how technical can I get here? You know, um, you know, if you're working with 3D, I think it's fair to say if you go out there and look at the best looking Unity game, and then you look at the best looking Unreal game. I think it's fair and accurate to say that Unreal game is going to look better. And, you know, there are many reasons for that. You know, like generally speaking, you know, the Unreal engine kind of gets a little closer to the metal. So, you know, it can render, uh, you know, render more polygons and vertices, you know, the kinds of maps that you can use, uh, you know, spec maps, normal maps, color maps, diffuse maps, emissive maps. Um, you know, it's, it's extensive. But for us, the reason for our game that made um, you know Unreal really attractive for what I do and what Amanda does is this one tool within it called Matinee. Uh, Matinee is a subset of Kismet, which is this visual scripting language within it. But um, when you look at the history of games becoming more cinematic and games being able to tell more stories, you can really look back to you know the first Unreal. In the nineties and this language that came from it. And what it allows us to do is to have this really sophisticated, uh, cinematic scripting language. So if Amanda wants to animate a scene with, you know, our main character Holiday holding a gun on someone and they have this really tense 24 like showdown, you know, we have access to this fantastic tool that lets us, you know, tweak, uh, animation sets, lets us tweak which characters wear at what time. It lets us uh, tweak maps and materials that are used. It lets us tweak sound cues. So for us, what makes Unreal the most attractive engine for our game type are these powerful cinematic tools.
0: I'm just looking at the documentation for Matinee, and I think Mm -hmm. my favorite feature is enable gore in editor preview.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure if that's uh, you know, some of the functions are don't exist for uh, you know, for the mobile version. I, I actually I don't know if they exist for us. That's a question for Maria.
3: <laughs> and I mean, the other thing that's been beneficial is Matinee is part of this larger Kismet visual scripting system. Out of the box, I mean, you can do a lot with Kismet, but there is a limit. But what the scripting language Unreal Script lets me do is build uh, custom nodes. So if we want to do a certain kind of interaction. I can build a custom node that, that kind of hides behind the scenes what, what's going on, but then, Brianna I can use it in Kismet, which has also been very powerful because, you know, there is a limit to how much you can do with visual scripting alone without adding code, but they let me build Kismet, uh, Kismet nodes that help that out.
2: So at what point do you, like, in Maya, you can design your 3D meshes and, and textures and, and do, like, skeletal animation, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so at what point do you take that, like, the animations you've done in, In Maya and at what point does uh, this uh, matinee tool like if you're like walking and you have to like jump over a puddle do you like define the walking states and the jumping states in Maya and then you sort of tie them all together
4: well Amanda why don't you talk about your end of that and then I will talk about uh, implementing it
5: well so our game isn't very cyclical there are cycle animations that we have for, like, the combat engine, but most everything else is cinematic. So I'm responsible for making everything happen in world space, um, location-wise and timing-wise, and everything is really all laid out in Maya first. Um And then once we get it to a point where we like it, I mean, I'm constantly showing everybody play blasts of everything that I'm doing. Um, and once it's to a point where we like it, I then export it out with, uh, the FBX plugin. And that's what is translated into Unreal. And that's what Brie takes and assembles. So that's, that's everybody. That's like the player characters, whatever tools they're using. That's the cameras. That's me loading up the sound cues so that everything, uh, well, the, the vocals. Um, and then somebody else goes in and adds sound effects and everything in Kismet. So that, yeah, that's you know. my end of
4: it. <laughs> you know, and then Amanda will pass it off uh, you know, to my end. Have you guys played Mass Effect by chance? How many of you guys have played Mass Effect?
2: I, I played the first one for
4: okay.
2: uh, not very long. I, okay. I don't have a lot of time to play like in-depth games. And so when I sure. find one that like looks like it's going to suck all my time away, I try to right.
4: stay, avoid it. Stay, stay, <laughs> avoid <laughs> Run it. away. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, um, well... The thing Mass Effect is, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with it, but the, the thing Mass Effect is really known for is this Paragon renegade system, right? Like your Commander Shepard can be rogue or they can kind of be, uh, you know, a, a good guy or a good girl. And so what happens is Amanda goes through and creates all these wonderful uh, scenes that are just bursting with life. If you look at um, you know, our animation, the characters just seem so believable. And what she'll do is she'll go through and uh, animate variants of the scene. Like maybe Holiday uh, succeeds in jumping across a gap. Maybe she fails. And then what I do is I take these uh, anim sets that she exports through FBX. And um, Maria's created all these wonderful logic notes for me. So, you know, I go through there and I'll implement them. So, you know, if you're playing a Holiday that for our game is professional, one set of events will play. If you're playing a uh, version of Holiday, who is more rogue, who's more Jack Bauer-like, it will go through a different set of events. And um on top of that, I do the materials, meaning... Uh, the textures and and uh, things that make the world really pop from the geometry. And I also did the sound design. Uh, for a game like ours, it's so cinematic. In doing this job, it's really amazed me how critical the sound design is. And I spend an immense amount of time picking the right music, picking the right sound effects, uh, working with the sound to really have them add up to this emotional experience.
3: So what, like you're talking about with, Jumping over poles and all that. We're not really a game where you can freeform walk around where a lot of those kind of more cyclical things are happening. The only part where we really only use cyclical or shorter animations is in the combat engine, and even there, we're relatively simplified in relation to a lot of combat engines. In part, just because the, the particular style of combat we wanted, partly because we're a small team, there's limits. So Amanda, like, we'll make a front move to the left animation, move to the right animation, move forward, move left, you know, shoot and various stuff. And in that case, she's exported, and it's mostly to me dealing with how to blend
1: them together appropriately during combat. So maybe I'm I'm not completely understanding. So some of these things are cyclical, like walking around and stuff. But when you're mm-hmm. talking about cinematic, I'm not even sure approach. I guess are you basically saying that you can't use those cyclical types of animations because the camera angle may be different, or the you know the way that you're viewing things are going to be different, so it'll render differently pretty much, you know, differently in different circumstances because you're not using the I same I think animation. if we
2: are like, if we were designing Mario, it's be pretty clear you've got, like, a, a walking state, a running state, and a jumping state, right? Yeah, correct. Uh, so yeah. it's, like, easy, to, like, given player input, you can, like, switch between those states and, I, and from what I understood is that while you have those, like, general concepts, you're, like, piecing them together, like, per scene.
4: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, Amanda, this is your department. Why don't you uh, speak well, to this a bit?
5: I mean, we have quite a few joints in the facial rig, mainly so that we can lip sync. It's not procedural. Like, uh, sometimes if you watch a game, the mouth and the face is kind of dead because they're just blah, 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 blah. And it, it's the program taking sound bites and maybe, you know, trying to lip sync to that rather than having an animator go through and hand key it. Um, that was
2: exactly the first ASX for me. Like, I, I yeah. hated that part of that game because their mouth just made like an open triangle when they were trying to talk.
4: It's laughter. Ba-ba-ba. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just you know bought Lightning Returns, and I was really shocked by how much this issue matters because um, you know when Amanda will animate something, you'll feel so much more life in their faces and their expressions, and you know Lightning just feels dead through the whole game to me. <laughs>
5: Well, I mean, I was going through and playing Bioshock Infinite. And I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I loved that game. Like, the, ask anybody on my team. I, like, can't stop talking about that stupid game. But even then, sometimes, like, Elizabeth, the, the facial animation just wasn't there. And, like, I'm watching it. I'm like, all right, I'm really going to cut myself more of a break. <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, everything is, I'm, I've basically animated a feature length movie. By yeah. myself, um, and that—that's kind of the approach to it. It's not—it's not something the program could do for me and have it come out the way we would want it. So, you know, it was something that we did by hand through many iterations, and yeah, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's just we—we we had an effect in mind, and that's—that's that's the best way for us to go through and do it.
0: And it sounds like a lot of what you're describing is essentially you are like you're halfway towards building an animated movie as much as you are a game because a lot of this i mean i guess cinematic is is the clue there right? Like, so so how much does the the, i guess the techniques are different in terms of what stuff you do by hand versus what stuff you do procedurally but it sounds like the tooling is kind of the same like if i was going to make a more procedural like run around and jump up up and down things and hit people with a hammer or whatever. Is it the same tools but just used in a different way or would I need like totally different tools?
5: No, no. I mean, you'd still be using the same controls and everything. Um, Most everything that you did would be at origin. So it's not like it would be running all over the map. You would do it in one single spot, you know, a run cycle, a jump cycle, that sort of thing. And then that gets taken into... The best example I have is with Unity. We, uh, The studio I was working at prior to this, we were making a game called Robot Rising. And, you know, you, you take the little jump animations and then you assign, you know, which key does what, when. But it it very much is the same idea, same bones, same rigs, everything. It's just a difference of where it gets exported and what the program is going to interpolate for you versus already saying, this is where this is happening.
3: I mean, in terms of the Maya side, it's the same. If For something that's like running around and shooting, then that's basically more engine controlled, and so that'd be more the programmer dealing with. In the case of us, it's basically mini-movies split up by combat. So because we're mini-movies, it's more on the movie side, is more the matinee side, and it's very controlled what's happening, as opposed to if you're running around and jumping, you have to have user input, and so you end up having more programming involvement with it as opposed to our mini movies which has you know other than some logic in it, it you know has very little programming involvement with
0: it gotcha so matinee is the thing that lets you build these take these little building blocks that you've built in in maya and then kind of sew them together into a scene
4: yeah, it's mm-hmm. fantastic. We love it. So, you know, and again, that's why we chose to use Unreal as opposed to you know, Unity. Uh Unreal license is very expensive. If you want you know the full version of it to publish on you know PC and iOS, like that's gonna cost you fifty thousand dollars. So you know, these are non trivial costs. I forget how much uh a Unity license is. So don't take this as gospel, but as I remember it's like a thousand dollars, fifteen hundred, something like cheaper. that. Yeah, it's much and, cheaper. And they
2: have a free version.
4: Yeah, in Class. So
2: if we could get maybe into like the, the programming side of it, uh, I assume you're using
3: C++? So no, I mean, because we started with UDK, it has two layers. So the whole engine is built in C++, but the gameplay scripting language is called Unreal Script, which has a lot of similarities to C++, you know, and how it's run. So there's crossover, but that's primarily what I've been using, um, which handles the gameplay aspects of it.
2: Like what is it similar to?
3: I mean, it, it's similar to C++. It's object-oriented, it's classes. It's got a lot of similar syntax as well. And they also come, it's not that you're starting from scratch either. The game already has, you know, a couple thousand Unreal script files that's kind of laid out either to use as examples or to build up on, that I've built up on, depending on what we need. Like in some places, they have uh, weapon classes there already, but they were way more powerful and had way too much stuff compared to what we needed for our relatively simple combat. So in that case I would look at theirs and kind of, you know, maybe get advice from it, but I rebuilt it. But in other cases, like how rigs work, I just directly built off of that and already used the functionality that it had.
4: Yeah, one of the things that really worries us at uh, you know a giant space cat is uh, you know we you know our game Revolution sixty is made with Unreal three which was, you know, the most, it was what was out when we started this project. Uh, in the meantime, U4 uh, has come out and they've deprecated Unreal scripts. Uh, you know, they've moved entirely over to, you know, C++. So we have no idea if Epic is going to move over to, uh, you know, their mobile engine basically to Unreal 4. You have to assume they will at some point. So um, what we're really worried about is when we get around to our SQL, you know, this year, uh, are we going to have to redo all these functions that Maria has uh, made? So, uh, you know, we're, we're really worried about that.
2: Yeah, that sounds like it'd be really frustrating to have them yeah, deprecate yeah. the, lang- the, the yeah. entire language.
3: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, since they're deprecating it, does that mean you know that part of their ability to have UDK, this free version for people to try and start with, was the fact that they could split up the C++ and Unreal Script and only give you access to Unreal Script. If it's all C++, is there even going to be a free version anymore for those people who you know got a chance to use it? I, I don't know.
0: So is that the main difference between the UDK and Unreal and the full Unreal Engine is just the ability to drop down to C plus
3: Yeah,
4: that's the main right. feature. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's also the revenue share. Like I said, there's also support from Epic. You know, uh, when you pay for a full license, you can, you know, talk to Epic, post in their forums. I mean, obviously they treat you more seriously if you've written them a giant check versus you know using the free <laughs> version of their game so sure. um yeah there are many benefits but uh you know, for us the biggest one is being able to you know, keep more of our money obviously so i'm
6: curious to know a little bit about the development tools i know you've talked a little about some of the tools that are included in the development kit but is there an ide you use what does that run on what does it look like
3: well, it depends on what you're talking about. I mean, if you're talking about putting together all the content or even the matinees, that's using their provided Unreal Editor, which is, I you know, I presumably similar to Unity Editor. Um, it lets you make the maps. It lets you place objects in the 3D. If you're using um, the full engine, it's required to use Visual Studio. But for me, I'm, for Unreal Script, uh, I've tried a few different ones that were custom for Unreal Script, which I didn't like, and I went back to Fairly basic, just highlighter text editor that has worked the best for me. I'm sure for the if you're using source code, using Visual Studio is much preferable. But for my purposes, this text editor has worked the best.
6: Okay, yeah, I, I did a little looking myself. It seems like there are a lot of third-party Unreal Script IDEs, but I couldn't tell how good any of them were.
3: And I tried most of them, and you know, they, I mean, they're right, but they didn't really provide anything above what i could get in something else that works as well for me
0: is there a big like ecosystem of kind of community stuff outside of outside of the stuff that kind of is official unreal engine stuff is there is there tools and libraries and things like that or is it is it basically just what the company provides is is what everyone uses
3: i mean if you're talking about like you know what you download with uke and install and if you can add stuff to that my assumption is, with source code, you can really get into trying to add more elements of your own. But for us, it's, you know, it's pretty much the tools that they've provided with Just far.
5: Okay.
4: I mean, I could talk about the, um, you know, the asset creation side. I mean, we could certainly, you know, try to make our entire game using BSP brushes or something like that. But what, um, you know, we've gone through and done in Revolution sixty is every single level that you're in, um, we had a modeler go through, create that static mesh, and actually create that environment. So, you know, if you're talking at the tools in our pipeline on the asset creation side, it's uh, there's a massive list of them. You know, our characters were taken through a ZBrush pass, you know, to kind of uh, paint them and get their costumes correct. The models and static meshes you see inside the game, uh, they're modeled using a NURB-based uh, program called Inventor Fusion. We took them through a retopology pass. We brought them into Maya. We v them with a tool uh, named uh hedas uh, Hedis UV layout, uh, which let us kind of chop them up like you might chop up a world map and flatten it. Uh, we create our textures using Photoshop. Uh, we'll sometimes create normal maps using Crazy Bump. I mean, there's an entire litany of tools we use along the way sound editing you know there's a uh, we use plugins uh, one plugin we use for maya to help with the retopology pipeline is uh called nex because it helps us select coplanar segments of vertices so you know if you're um there i guess my message here is there's a entire litany of tools that you have to do to you know, produce a game of this quality yeah it sounds well, like i guess and- i
3: guess maybe my, i misunderstood the question i thought you meant tools that were like integrated plug-in as part of unreal as opposed to i mean there are a huge amount of programs we use and eventually export products but they're not like directly integrated into unreal itself
0: gotcha gotcha yeah i mean i guess i I was just i was just interested in all of it i'm i'm not um i don't have a game development background so it's all it's all interesting it sounds super expensive like most of those tools sound like they're not open source or free tools
3: uh, yeah. Maya,
4: <laughs> Maya, we used the 2011 version of Maya. We wanted to go buy that back in 2011. That was $4,000. And then the next year, Maya 2012 came out and we said, Hey, let's, uh, let's look at going and upgrading to this. And we talked to Autodesk and they said, Sure, we'll give you upgrade pricing for this. We'll knock 10% off of $4,000. So, yeah, you
5: are uh, wow. definitely talking about tools. It's very that- kind of them. As, an,
4: as,
5: yeah. <laughs> as an so I've heard
0: twenty eleven was a great Non-trivial. vintage.
4: Non-trivial.
5: It it was a very good vintage. We're yeah. we're very we're very comfortable with it. Yeah. I, I have to say though, like a lot of the programs now I think have realized that they're almost unattainable and are offering subscription services. Like Adobe put out Creative Cloud where you can get access to everything, like every program that they offer. Um, and the latest versions of it for 50 bucks a month, or, you know, if you're new to the service, I think it's like 30. So I definitely think that they're trying to be more accessible. But there is something to be said for just having the license and not having to worry about it.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it kind of feels like the theme for a lot of this is there's the entry level stuff like Unity, which is a little bit cheaper, but not as powerful. But if you really want to kind of do it seriously, then you have to be willing to sink some cash into mm. into some tools.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, pay people, tools, licenses, marketing uh, you know, these are these are expensive things. Uh, you know, my background is a developer. You know, I can certainly I do development work in the trenches with my team every single day. But uh, you know, prior to this, one of the jobs I had was you know fundraising in politics, uh, which has turned out to be an excellent background for you know someone running a game development studio. So. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's. I know so many indie game developers here in Boston that do like those free tools. Yeah, you know, they like Unity, they like Blender. But um, you know, if you look at the product that we're trying to bring to market, you know, I think the the work speaks for itself. You can look at our trailer, and uh, you know, you can decide for yourself that those tools are worth the the added cost.
6: That actually, I was going to ask you if you don't mind talking about it. How, how have you approached putting the team together? getting funding to do development? Because I take it you haven't released yet. Is that right? That's correct.
4: It's coming out and we're working with our publisher on that right now. Uh, It could be two months. It could be three months. Uh, We're trying to get the thumbs up on that. You know, I I generally don't like talking about the, you know, the nitty gritty of how we've uh, funded the game to outside people. I can say that we, uh, we started Rev60 with um, you know, basically assembling a uh, minimally viable product, uh, an MVP, and you know, took it from there and uh, got additional funding. So,
6: did you guys on the team know each other before started this, or was this something you assembled?
4: I met Amanda I... on
6: Craigslist,
4: where all yeah. great, uh, <laughs> where all great uh, professional relationships start. <laughs> so. Yeah,
5: for like a completely different different project. Yeah like i i was originally coming on to help her husband with some work and do some side work with Bree working on like a top down turn based strategy game and we you know uh, infinity blade came out with unreal and we like hey Wait a minute, we can do this. (laughs) My eyes kind of bugged out when she suggested it, but yeah, we, uh, uh, I started working with her full time and I had gone to school with, um, with Maria. So when it came time that we needed a programmer, I was like, I just so happen to know somebody. And that's, and we brought Maria on full time. That's kind of how we. We all got started.
4: Yeah. We call ourselves Team Bam uh, Brianna, Amanda, and Maria. So
0: So I've got a random question, which is because I I have a background in this. I used to be, my first job professionally was doing C for a motion capture company. So, you know, like the thing where you stick the ping pong balls on Mm -hmm. people's. How do you guys do the animation for for kind of people walking around and stuff? Is that done by hand or are you capturing, are you using motion capture or how does that work?
5: No, I I do it all by hand. Uh, I, I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> when, when I hear motion capture, I kind of go, boo, hiss.
4: Let's talk more I, about that.
5: <laughs> no, I mean, I think you've probably seen it out there where motion capture can kind of venture into Uncanny Valley.
0: Yeah,
5: absolutely. Like Polar Express, for example. But there are also times where it's done really, really well. So like anything, I kind of want to treat it as a tool like the the biggest thing for me if if we do motion capture for rev sixty two which I'm becoming more and more on board with. Because- <laughs> Doing it by hand sucks, but you know if if it's a setup where it's something that I can then take that information and manipulate it how i'm how it should look I'm more on board with that like I don't want it to be the be all and end all because I think you definitely lose some of it in the translation like you know the hand movements won't be quite right like anytime you do animation, you really almost have to have it be over exaggerated in order to sell it. But there are certain things that motion capture will will do well, like, you know, somebody scratches their face like that's that's a fun little tick that wasn't there before, you know, so it it really is just a matter of using it as a tool and not the exclusive way to go. I think that's when it's most successful.
4: Yeah um yeah we live here in Boston with Harmonix uh you know Harmonix did dance central and uh rock band obviously and uh yeah you know, we've certainly they they actually built an entire mocap studio for it so yeah we've certainly you know, considered you know approaching Harmonix and say like can we basically pay you to use your mocap studio and you basically hire actors to do our game. Um, but I think there's, for us, primarily as technology people, I think there's a, um, a real tendency to kind of want to throw away the past and find a, a technological solution. You know, like, for instance, right now, there's a lot of uh, assisting a podcast this last week that's talking about if we're going to you know, stay with Objective-C or if there aren't, uh, you know, if Apple needs to be developing a new language. And um, I think we we kind of want to, you know, kind of throw out things automatically and move forward. And for me, coming into this project, I was very much... Like, hey, let's just mocap this. Let's, um, let's come up with a technological solution for it. But, um, since working with Amanda and, you know, becoming more and more familiar with, you know, the, the techniques and approaches of animation, she's really sold me that you can get a, um, you know, a better product in many ways through doing it by hand. So, um, for Rev62, we might, go through and try to do some of our combat work uh you know with mocap but uh as far as cinematics and you know scenes where you really need emotion I'm a big believer in doing that by hand you know just one more last thing if you look at the most popular iOS game using the unreal engine it's without a doubt Infinity Blade Cyrus and Infinity Blade has 22 mesh influencing bones holiday our main character in rev 60 Uh, Maria, correct me if I'm wrong here, but is it 78 mesh influencing bones? So we've basically, yeah, yeah. We've given Amanda this vast array of tools and controls that she can use to really tell a story.
0: I I definitely agree that you can't just take kind of motion capture and and throw it into, into the game and you're, and you're done with it. Well, it kind of feels like though that, that there's that middle ground. I was thinking about this earlier when you were talking about the lip syncing, right, and uh-huh. it looks really silly if you just let the computer do it, but presumably doing it all by hand is is a is a real pain. Like uh-huh. it seems like there must be some middle ground where you can have kind of the computer do the first pass and then you kind of like fix all of the stupid mistakes it makes, but maybe that ends up taking longer than just doing it from scratch yourself. Well.
5: It can. It really can. I mean, there's. I we haven't come across yet a product where. Um, we we were actually approached by somebody with like a mocap suit, and the way he was describing it, it it basically bakes the keys, you know, into the file. So every single frame has a key on like every single control. So you end up with like this massive amounts of yeah. information, and trying to go in and alter that is kind of a really big pain in the butt. I mean, there was an MMO I was working on and we had clock simulation and it would do that same thing where it would bake a key on, you know, every single frame. And if you need to go in and tweak something, you had to kill so much information. And there were a few times where we just ended up like destroying it and starting over. So it can be a double-edged sword. It can save you some time, but it can also take just as much time. And really like lip syncing is such a small portion of what i do like i find that actually goes the fastest (laughs) lining up the the words and everything it's more getting like the facial animation and like the head tilt and you know it's it's a lot of me sitting in front of my computer making weird mouth gestures and hoping nobody can see me
0: (laughs) (laughs) i can imagine as well if you um in both extremes there's a risk of of losing the, the kind of the, the artistry. Like, yeah, I mean, I kind of guess that if you're just using, obviously, if you're just using, um, motion, like stuff that comes from reality, like motion capture, then you don't get to have like the otherworldly, you know, like you, you want this stuff to be larger than life, I suppose. But then at the same time, if you're just doing it all by hand, then you miss all of those, um, little human, human motions that you don't really think about, like the scratching the nose and all the rest of it.
5: Sure. You can, you definitely do. I mean, I was geeking out watching Frozen, the latest Disney animated movie, because they they do get all those little ticky motion things. But I mean, that's also a team of like seven hundred animators, and yeah. you know, one person gets us seen for the duration of production.
2: Yeah, there was a really great session at, at WWDC where they, uh, a guy from Pixar, he was using a Mac Pro. Unknowingly, he just had like a. It was in sort of a nondescript outer box, Uh but he he plugged in a monitor cable and a keyboard and a mouse, and uh, he did a little uh, you know brush work on uh, Monster University. I saw that was pretty awesome.
4: Yeah, it was very impressive.
2: So I have a question about like uh, cinematic games in general. Like, Uh there's. Uh, There's definitely like a a spectrum of like how much interactivity you allow in a game and how much is just like you sit and watch a movie. Uh And uh, on one extreme, you have something like uh, I think it was Metal Gear Solid 2 Uh for PlayStation 2. Uh, where I felt like every time I turned a corner, I was watching another movie. (laughs)
4: Yeah, (laughs) exactly.
2: And then you beat the game, and then you get into the first ending, and then the second ending, and then the third ending. And you're like, oh my (laughs) goodness, I actually have to leave to go to work. Uh, But This ending is is like an hour long. Uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have like, you know, Mario Brothers, where it's like right. you're playing the entire thing. Uh, where do you guys fall along that spectrum? And what what do you think the sweet spot is for your game? Yeah,
4: we take a data driven approach to that, you know, with one of uh, with our original version of Brev 60, uh, we presented it at PAX East last year. And, um, you know, keep in mind, PAX East is primarily super hardcore gamers, right? Like we're right across the booth from you have some FPS uh, equipment that's being sold. And what we got over and over people going, this game is too slow. This game is too slow. So we went back and Maria actually calculated how long every single event was in the entire game. And we created a rule that except for you know extreme cases, like the ending, for instance, you must interact with the game every 10, 20, 30 seconds. No more so than you yeah, exactly. So you, you feel like you're really connected to the experience. You know, I personally love Metal Gear. That's one of the the games that really got me interested in doing cinematic stories. But I would also say that, um, you know, there is a, a consensus with gamers out there that, you know, oh, QTEs are awful. QTEs are bad. QTEs are a are, are terrible game type. And what we've really discovered and what our data shows over and over and over Uh, The players discover playing our game is it's one thing to push X on a PlayStation controller, right? It's one thing to push up on a keyboard. But when you are using an iPad or an iPhone, you know, with that touch interface, the the, the same thing that makes using Safari feel like such a more intimate, close experience, it makes QTEs what we call action events. It makes them much more fun to do because you feel... Connected to it. If you, you slide, uh, you have something to the right in combat and then you see Holiday deliver this powerful cinematic kick to our opponent, it makes you feel really connected to the experience. So, um, you know, that, that downfall for the cinematic game type is something that's, you know, it's been on our mind for literally every day of production. But, um, you know, it's my opinion, which is a very biased opinion, but it's my opinion we've really managed to, um, work and avoid some of those obvious uh, pitfalls.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree. It's it's like an order of magnitude, more intimate experience. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So I've got one more question that I want to ask, and that's just the story. How do you come up with a, gr- a good story for the game?
4: Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, the script is credited to both Amanda and I. So I wrote the first version of the script, and for me, my original conception for the script of Revolution 60 was 24. I am the world's biggest 24 fan. I think it's a fantastically written show. And the reason I think it's a good show is they really excel at bringing two characters together and really explaining what their motivations are. And letting you get to know them as people who are both flawed people and good people. Like Jack Bauer, the hero, I think anyone would admit he's a very flawed, angry character that can take things too far. So my original version of that was to basically uh, there was this character in 24 season seven. Her name was Renee Walker. And she was basically, uh, you know, people, uh, fans of the show called her She-Jack. I and uh, I'm going to create how it's kind of based off of her personality. So the script of Revolution 60 is you have this orbital weapons platform uh, it's set in the future. You have this orbital weapons platform that's gone adrift over uh, China. And you have these American special forces that basically go up to the space station and see why this has gone, you know, adrift. So we set up this script, and my my first version of it was very humorless, very dry. And yeah, you know, this is where Amanda really changed the tone of the project. Um, you know, Amanda's a huge fan of Buffy. And she kept saying, you know, more humor, more sarcasm. Uh, you know, let's amp up the humor. Let's tell a joke. Jack Bauer never tells any joke in that entire series. <laughs> so what we've ended up with is, you know, it's a very intense game. It's it's a dark game. We're going to end up rating our game you know, 12 and above for a reason. If you have very young children. They probably should not play our game. But we also were always looking for the humor in these moments. And um, that's kind of the approach. Amanda, do you have anything to add to that?
5: I mean, just that I basically subscribe to the Whedon-ism of, you know, kill everybody, but, but tell a joke. For God's sake, tell a joke. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were moments, and, and some of it is just part of my personality, and I think it comes through a lot with the animation, you know, how would I react in the situation. So, like, a lot of Holiday's facial reactions, like her takes, are pretty much me, <laughs> Like, they're just me. <laughs>
4: See, I think of you as more Amelia than anybody. So, Oh,
5: yeah. Wicked sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I was watching one of the videos and one of the characters opened up. And she said she was uh, just fresh out of rehab again.
5: Oh gosh, Amanda Winley. Yeah. Oh yeah. my, she makes my job so easy, so easy. Like I just have to listen to her, and I can imagine exactly like what she's doing with her hands and her, her expression. Like she she's a very animated person, and and just slightly batshit. And yeah, yeah, Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we I have like a whole file just full of Amanda Winley outtakes. I mean, she'll just say stuff like "Oh, go f a monkey." Like <laughs>
3: she's
5: she's she's fun. Um, actually, a lot of a lot of the voice actresses give me really good stuff to work with. It def- definitely makes it easier. If if
4: you have my job, you're inundated with bad actresses that think they should be voice actresses and then you, know, you work with someone for those of you that don't know amanda Wynne lee she's uh you know one of the most famous voice actresses in history yeah you know, she did um uh yukiko in persona four and you know she's uh i never know how to say this is it neon city evangelion is that correct she's evangelion yeah evangelion she's the main character in that and she is a complete trip to work with uh yeah. we also work with mary eve carrington she plays uh, Amelia, and yeah, you know, she's been on the Disney Channel. She's, uh, you know, she does all this animated voice, and she is so funny and so sarcastic. Just all of our voice actresses are amazingly talented. Yeah, there, there's been a
5: couple yeah. of lines where we're like, "Yeah, I'm not sure if that's going to work," and like we'll be able to pass it off to them, and they'll nail it. Yeah, it's every really time. Amazing. It's really good.
1: Cool. Well, I don't think I have any other questions. How about you guys? <laughs> I think I think it's all so interesting. It's kind of fun.
4: <laughs> yeah, we're really uh it's something I take pride in is the fact that you know GSK is doing different kind of work than anyone else out there in the industry. Yeah, you know, there's no shortage of Games that are kind of trying to capture this retro 16-bit sprite experience using the, um, you know, uh, sprite kit tools and Xcode. So, you know, there's no shortage of those kinds of games out there. But if you look at Rev 16, what we're trying to produce, we aren't shipping a game that's a bunch of in-app purchases. We aren't shipping a game that kind of, you know, has you recycling and doing the same thing over and over again. You know, we're really shipping something that, uh, is an emotional experience for the platform with, with real characters. I mean, you know, my personal theory of why Angry Birds has been successful is that in a sea of games that lack all kinds of personality, Angry Birds at least gave you some colorful characters and an interesting idea and a bit of backstory there it was just that little hint of emotional connection that you could have to the characters it made it be successful and you know that drives everything we do at giant space cat amanda and i you know we've we've animated and worked with our characters and sets for years now um we really care about these characters and we've we've done our best to try to inject life into them and i really hope that when people play our game they'll be like you know, I really identify with Amelia. I really identify with Holiday. I, I, I hope that it's something, especially young girls, will play and find a character with their personality type in this game and you know, see themselves represented in video games.
1: I, I think that's part of the reason why a lot of us like the video games is that to some degree we identify with the characters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we identify somewhat with the storyline. Even if, it, you know, it, its reality is much different from ours, you know, there are usually some themes that run through all of them that we, you know, that we pick up on.
4: Absolutely. Totally. Yeah,
1: that's that's also kind of the hallmark of a good story. We, we like watching it because there's something of us in
4: it. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can look at something like House of Cards and you can see people are really, uh, they're thirsty for these kinds of complex stories with well-developed characters out there. And, you know, my main criticism of the iOS platform is it's, again, no offense to Apple or my fellow indie developers, but it's it's generally a very shallow, ephemeral experience. And, you know, we're trying to take the ball and go the complete other direction. And if you play our game, you're going to, you know, play something that is a, you know, three-hour short extremely polished emotional experience. You're gonna to have to make choices in our game that they're gonna be difficult for you. I can show you play tester data that shows like you're gonna have some really heart wrenching moments if you play our game. And that's we're eager to kind of bring out that conflict in the player.
1: Yep. All right. Well uh we've been going for about an hour and we usually <laughs> we usually don't go quite this long, but it's been yeah. an interesting conversation. <laughs> so let's go ahead and get into the picks. Pete, do you want to start us with picks?
0: Sure. So three picks today. First pick is a fellow indie game thing from a friend of mine. So apologies for the nepotism. <coughs> it's called Playsets. I actually don't think it's out yet. He he just did a Kickstarter. Him and his wife and their friend. They just did a Kickstarter for it, and it, it's for playing Dungeons and Dragons. Those kind of like board game RPG type things, but remotely using your using your iPhone or using yeah. your iPad. So it's a really it's a really cool idea. Personally, I actually don't have a background of playing those board games, but lots of people who I've showed this to have thought it was really cool. So I really like it because it doesn't try to replace all of the stuff that you do in real life. It just kind of facilitates it virtually. And it's kind oh. of cool. And my second pick is kind of random, but it was spurred by a comment someone made earlier about Apple replacing Objective-C. That reminded me of this awesome podcast that John Syracuse recorded uh, two or three years ago talking about Copeland 2010. Uh uh Uh, So he did this hypercritical podcast on five by five. Which awesome. Every
4: episode of that show is a classic, Seriously. and I, I really do. Yeah, John is here in Massachusetts, and it's my it's my dream that when he's at Pax East this year, that maybe he'll come up, and I'll play <laughs> our game, and I'll completely <laughs> geek out.
0: <laughs> I think no. you and I you and I share a geek crush on John. Syracuse, yeah.
4: So. <laughs> um, no, that episode is one of his best. Uh, yeah. I think the Bridges of Syracuse is another. So. Yeah.
0: My third pick, inspired by that last comment we just made about kind of immersive characters and also a strong female leads, something I'm super passionate about. I want. I don't like how much weird male-dominated stuff there is in in our industry and in computing in general. Um, there's this thing called the Hawkeye Initiative. Oh um, yes. <laughs> And it's, it's really fun. It's really funny. It's really silly. It's basically kind of fixing, uh, the weird gender imbalance in comic books by painting male comic book characters in female comic book character poses. Um, oh, that is excellent. <laughs> you need to see it to believe it. And it's also like really badly done. Like, uh, it's some of them are good, but most of them are people, you know, in like, um, drawing pictures with, with, uh, photo paint or whatever. So you should check it out. Uh, it's worth a few minutes of your time. Pretty good stuff. That's
4: it. I strongly agree with that. Oh man, this is
0: awesome. (laughs)
2: That
1: is amazing.
4: (laughs) Yeah. You can lose a whole day there. So do we get, uh, do the people of GSK, do we get to voice our own checks here? Yes, you do. Awesome. Awesome. Um,
1: I usually call on everyone in turn, but go ahead.
4: No, 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 I don't (laughs) need to, I am a very passionate person. Um, so stop disrupting. uh, Um, no, I actually got a, uh, we got a tax return this week. So I got my first PS4 and I actually wrote a, uh, I wrote a piece a, uh, a while back arguing about how, you know, basically the game of the year awards for IGN and, uh, you know, GameSpot and Giant Bomb. To me, they lack statistical validity, validity because basically female journalists were not represented there. And, uh, I took that argument and really applied it to Tomb Raider, which I felt strongly should have been last year's game of the year. I thought it was an amazing game, an amazing story. Rihanna Pratchett you basically wrote the script to that. And I thought it was a fantastic experience. And the, uh, the Tomb Raider team, uh, heard I got a PS4 and they actually sent me a copy of their upgraded version of Tomb Raider for, uh, PS4 and Xbox One. And it is, Amazing, especially for, for me, because I work with materials and texture maps all day long, all the things they basically upgraded for the PS4 version. It's really awesome to see how much better a game it is on PS4 as opposed to PS3. So uh, that would very strongly be one of my picks. I think we've also talked about um, Apple's kind of challenge with, uh, you know, Objective C for the future. And uh, I think I would strongly recommend this uh, week's Accidental Tech Podcast, which, you know, has our mutual crush John Siracusa on it, and You know, they're basically talking about some of the issues there and how long it takes to come up with these frameworks and, you know, some of the challenges facing Apple there. So uh, I would strongly advocate that. And also, uh, I'm playing uh, Bravely Default on 3DS. Some people have called it the the best Final Fantasy game in years. It's not a Final Fantasy game. Uh, And I would strongly agree with that. So if you have a 3DS, that game is strongly worth your time.
2: Sweet. I just picked one up.
4: Oh, did you? What games do you have for it?
2: Uh, It's one of my picks, so I'll get to that in a minute.
4: All right, all right. There you go. (laughs) All
2: right, Ben, what are your picks? Okay, thanks.
4: (laughs) Great transition.
2: So, yeah, I bought a 3DS. Um, I kind of, so I was like super Nintendo fan. Like I was five when I got my NES, and then I got SNES, and then a 64, and then I kind of just, I wasn't too excited about the GameCube. I did eventually pick one up, and I was kind of disappointed in the games on the GameCube, and so I didn't get anything after that and i just kind of it's a perception problem i think that that the ds was just for kids yeah and there's so many kids games available for them and that's clearly their market but there are some good games i was missing so uh i recently was listening to a new podcast on 5 by 5 directional show uh-huh. and they were just like going through a history of all these nintendo games that like I had never even played, and there's like a hundred Mario games that I haven't even, and I, f- I just sort of forgot how good the Nintendo's first party games are. Yep. So I uh, I went to the store and uh, picked up a 3ds and a uh, Zelda Link Between Worlds, and I've been playing that, you know, in my copious free time. But it is so, I mean, it's if you haven't played this one, it's very similar oh, to so um, uh, a Link to the Past, which I feel like I grew up on that game is okay. so so good uh this is like the same like initial world uh but different storyline and it's just i don't know it's like um scratching an old itch uh, to play those games again but not necessarily on an emulator uh, so I, I will also pick up bravely defaults uh once i finish this one
4: yeah i uh, have to say about link it is it really shows how timeless good game design is because you're playing that game, as it's the exact same game design as, you know, A Link to the Past, the 16-bit, you know, Zelda classic. And you're playing the sequel to that on 3DS. It's, it's an amazing game. I, I could not recommend it more strongly.
2: Yeah, I, the 3D kind of gives me a headache, so most of the time I turn it off. I do too. Uh, but it was not quite as much as a gimmick as I first thought if i'm able to sit still like not like uh, on an airplane or something or uh in bed as long as you're able to hold the the 3ds in the right angle it, it does look pretty nice but uh, oh. for short periods of time uh, my next pick i was just in chicago this weekend for CocoConf, and i had an extra day or afternoon to to go into chicago and i went to the museum of science and industry just picked it and, like what do i do in chicago and Holy crap! They have this amazing uh, exhibit of U five hundred and five, a captured German U boat from World War, II, World War II, where they were able to secure the Enigma code machine, and uh, they have all the stuff on display, including the original sub that was towed back to Bermuda. Anyway, it's amazing, amazing exhibit. Uh, so if you're heading to Chicago anytime soon, uh, definitely go check that out. Uh, I have a beer pick for my trip as well. I got a, a Southern Tier two X IPA, which was pretty darn good, and an anti pick. The TSA because they dropped my laptop.
3: Oh yeah,
2: they oh. they let the uh, the conveyor belt like pile up and it like all the the little plastic bins buckled oh. and my laptop was in there and it took a nosedive from about five feet in the air. Oh no, or maybe not that high, but uh, it still works, but it's got all kinds of dents on it, and <sighs> so now I have the great pleasure of dealing with how fast they respond to my claim. I bet so.
4: Oh, awesome. So
2: yeah, down I would be with, down a jail with the TSA. jail
4: from them giving that to me <laughs> if they dropped my
2: laptop. So, yeah. yeah. So down with the TSA, up with Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
6: Andrew, what are your picks? I've just got one pick today, and it's just a, a new project from Matt Thompson that I found useful this week. And it's uh, called Ono, which is Japanese for Axe. And it's a, an XML. It's sort of a yet another XML library for, for iOS and OS ten, but Uh, It was useful to me because I've got a project that uses NS XML document on OS ten and it's supposed to be a shared code base for iOS, but that doesn't exist on iOS. And anyway this this fills that hole nicely. So that's my pick. Awesome. Maria, what are your picks?
3: So I also just recently got a three DS and I have one game so far, Super Mario Brothers and the new Super Mario Brothers 2, because I am a giant fan of the side scrollers and pretty much the main the original ds game i played was the first one of that so i started that and so far it's been a lot of fun especially like giant mario and i also i don't know if this is out i think it's just ios but uh, the room 2 which is like a puzzle game which is really well done it's pretty short but it's really polished and really well done
1: all right James, what are your picks hey i've got one pick
7: but before i do now revolution 60 sounds like a pretty sweet game but I'm thinking that UDK is really more suited to, like, a flappy bird clone. Have you guys thought about that?
5: <laughs> <laughs> so if it doesn't
7: work out, i I just give that to you guys.
5: So. Sure, sure. Thanks. That's very valuable but, advice. Uh, yeah, nobody's done that yet. <laughs> we should totally get on that.
7: So I have one pick. I'm going to do a fish pick. So I spent a week in St. Pete Beach near Tampa, St. Petersburg area. And they got a lot of grouper down there. So I ate quite a bit of grouper. You know, I live in Minnesota. So there's really no reason to order fish off a menu. So unless you catch it, probably not worth it. But the grouper down there is fantastic and especially one company, Gulf Wild, where you can actually look up the grouper where it was actually caught and what date. It's kind of like kind of like it's an it's episode of Portlandia. Portlandia. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking except that. they didn't have the name of the fish. I was kind of disappointed at that, but it sounded like he had a pretty happy life swimming
0: around and but he was
3: delicious. The so grouper. So- Go Minnesota. I'm from Minnesota. I live in
0: Boston now, but I grew up in Minnesota. Okay. Wait. Aren't there a bunch of lakes there? There
7: must be plenty of fish. <laughs> yeah, well, you get, catch the fish. You know, if you uh, order from a restaurant, it comes from Canada
1: or something. It just takes time. Ah, uh, Canada. So, I mean, oh, Canada. <laughs> oh, Canada.
5: <laughs>
1: All right, Amanda. So, what are your picks?
5: Oh God, don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like my life has been Rev60 and my two year old. So, unless you want to hear about toddler apps, uh, yes, go for it. Yes. yes. All right. The best toddler apps that I've picked up <laughs> uh, Peekaboo Toy Box and Peekaboo Barn it's been really kind of fun watching my daughter pick up and by the way be able to open unlock my ipad find the netflix app and open up curious george all on her own
2: <laughs> it is amazing how kids can do that
5: holy crap it, it's frightening like i'm simultaneously proud and terrified and i'm like yep. you know what kid you earn that tv time <laughs> so yeah those toddler apps would be my my pick
4: Amanda, can you talk a bit about uh your Project X that we're talking about at G S K and do you wanna well, talk about that? Sure.
5: I mean yeah. honestly, like once once the game's out, we're uh we're talk we're gonna have some downtime. And in watching my daughter play with the various apps that are out there, like they're good, but there's just so much more that they could do. And there are a couple of foibles that happen where like you know, if the parents nearby, they're going to get annoyed really quick. So we're talking about um, it's, it's very high level still, but we're, we're talking about doing our own kind of toddler app using one of our characters, like a younger version of her and kind of having a girls can be scientists slant to it. But, you know, keeping it fairly simple and, and using, using the pipeline that we already have in place. And we're really excited about it. Yeah, that's an awesome idea yeah if you look
4: at um i i'm a non parent but uh yeah i've also been playing a lot of toddler apps this week kind of uh surveying the uh the landscape for it and uh i think there's a it, when i watch amanda's daughter respond to three d animation uh and my other friends you know with children um respond viscerally to seeing you three know, d animation on screen which i believe is very immersive and then we looked at the landscape, which is a lot of uh, you know, basically two D apps made with Sprite Kit, and um, you know, we think there's a, a place in a market out there for you know something basically done in three D that's more immersive with you know beautiful, lifelike animation of the characters. So um, we're um, we're going to see if we can put something like that together.
1: Cool. Hmm. I love how you, when you talk about playing games, it sounds like market research. You can pay me to do your market research whenever you want. <laughs>
4: <laughs> if you have my job, you can actually deduct games uh, on your taxes because it is, it's legitimately market research. Wow. I will pick up an Unreal game and study the way they've implemented materials and textures and static meshes and skeletal meshes and get you know, turn right around and sometimes contact the developers and find out how they've done that. So yeah, that's one of totally the advantages good. to my job.
5: The, the last five uh, apps I've purchased, I've been like, woohoo, tax right up.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do that. I do that sometimes too depending on what it is and if I have any interest in writing an app like that. All right. Well, I guess it's my turn to give out some picks. This week I got into some calendaring apps and I picked this up off of Mac Power Users podcast, so I better pick them too. But the two apps that I picked up that I'm really liking are BusyCal and the thing I like about BusyCal is that I can kind of customize it to the view that I want. I usually use um or I have been using Google Calendar before. And uh, this just imports it and sets it up nicely. It also puts the weather forecast at the top of the the day so I can see, okay, today is overcast and rainy. Tomorrow should be sunny. Thursday should be nice. Friday, you know, partly cloudy. And and it gives like the forecasted high and low and things like that. So I really, really like it. So um, I'm going to pick that. And then the other one is Fantastical. And the thing I like about Fantastical is that it provides a place where you can actually go in and enter things into your calendar, but instead of going and clicking on each field and saying, I have this event at this time, you know, and so you have to fill in all those different fields, you can just type it in, you know, meet with James Uber at 10 a.m. Central Time on Skype, and it'll just fill in all the fields correctly and put it on my calendar. And so uh, I I can't say enough good things about that because I just I love it. I don't have to think about okay click 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 click. I just open that up and I'm I'm off to the races. So I'm gonna pick those. And finally, I'm gonna do a little bit of shameless self promotion. I'm primarily a backend developer. So if you need some kind of smart backend on your system, you know an API implemented with REST or whatever, I can do that. I've also done some Apple push notification services work. And so if you need any of that done. Uh, feel free to give me a call or an email. Uh, my email is chuck at devchat.tv, and uh, I'll be happy to take care of that for you. And uh, with that, I guess we'll wrap up. We we do have a book club book. It is Functional Programming.
2: Functional Reactive Programming.
1: I need to write that down. Functional <laughs> by, Reactive by Programming. By Yep. So go pick up the book. We'll have a link in the show notes, and we'll catch y'all next week.